Real people. Real stories. All uncensored. This, this is, is Recovery Uncensored, uncensored with Ty Beckel. If you are alone tonight, you can come with us. If you don't have friends or family or people that you trust, we will be your confidants, your sisters and your brothers. Welcome back, everybody, to Recovery Uncensored. This is your host, Ty Beckel. Reporting down here from the Big Z Media Studio in downtown Alton, we cannot thank you guys enough for supporting our show, sticking around, and sharing everything that you have in the past. As you guys heard one of our last episodes, or last few episodes, we highlighted Heather Thompson, who we unfortunately lost in September. It was one of our most downloaded episodes, so thank you to everybody sharing that and honoring in her memory. But before we get started with our guest today, we do have a call to action, as always, Don't forget to share our stuff on your social media. You can share from our website. You can share from directly from whichever podcast platform you're listening to. Invite people. Maybe even give us a review if you're listening on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, so on and so forth. So we have a very special guest and another guest as well that's just as equally special to me in my story and my journey. This is an interview that I have been trying to do for about three years but I, you know, as I always say, if you, if you really feel compelled to do something and it's in your heart, stay persistent and it'll eventually, eventually happen. So I have the honor to introduce today, and I think a lot of people are excited about this because I've been dropping hints ever since uh, you guys have agreed for about, I don't know, three weeks. They're like, who is it? Who, who, you, who you interviewing? I'm like, well, it's, you know, you'll find out. You'll find out. So everybody, we have the Honorable Judge Kyle Knapp in the studio. How are you? I'm great. Excited to be here with you. Yes, me too. And we have the lovely, as always, Miss Kimberly Clark here in the studio. Hello. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So it's very good to have both of you in the studio. It is, uh, you know, I've been doing this podcast for, I don't know, three years now. We started in 2019 and then COVID came around and... Me and Nick were looking at each other like, well, what do we do now? Because uh, I originally reached out to Nick, and I came here, and I met with him, and I said, hey, I want to do this live radio show. And he's like, no, let's not do that yet. Let's do the podcast. I'm like, okay, fine. So we got access to the studio. Uh, his engineer helped me edit the, the the episodes. And then eventually he came to me. He says, hey, you know what? I think it's time to do a, a live show. So we do this, uh, the one-on-ones, and then we do the live show, which started off as one Saturday a month, and then it became so successful, and we had a lot of great guests. We moved it to every Sunday night from 6 to 8 p.m. So, um, you know, this has been come full circle. I, I remember being in, in which – this is how powerful it is because I really <laughs> – what email uh, uh, company I was using to – I got scared because I was using it, and you're like, yeah, I'll come on. This was way back in, like, 2020. And – and then I lost that. Then I lost your email. Then I think I lost your because cha- you gave me your number to the chambers. You said, "Hey, just call me." So I'm just like, you know what? And then I, I would try to push forward, but here we are. So you know, patience. And so it's we're going to go over a few things. So let's go well, real quick. We'll start with you, Judge Knapp. How have you been doing? What's been going on with you? I'm doing great. Uh, working a lot. Um, still loving working with the drug court. I get to work with Kim and just a great group of, of people in the drug court. Um, taking care of my family, like I always do, um, and just trying to be a part of the solution. 
Yeah, I love that. And you have two children, right? I have three. Three children. And then your husband as well? Yes, he's a lawyer here lawyer. in Alton. Um, but he works in personal injury. So personal injury. Our, our worlds never cross. Never cross? Okay. <laughs> Would that be weird if they did? Well, they couldn't. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's something called the ethical rules of, gotcha. uh, of practicing law that I could never um, have him practice in front of me or anyone from his law firm. So like any type of uh, criminal case, if it came in front of you and he was a prosecutor or a defense attorney, none of that could happen? Correct. And he's had a few criminal cases. Um, and if they were assigned to me, then they get assigned to another judge. Okay, cool. And he used to be, did he used to be the uh, city of Alton's attorney at one time? He was. Um, he was for the city of Alton. And then he's still the attorney for um, the village of East Alton and the village of Alhambra. Um, he used to be Grafton as well. Okay. So. Well, that's great to know. Yeah, we uh, we do a lot of work through the other nonprofit that I started, Renegade Gardens, with Mayor Carlton and... We, uh, we're, they, Isn't he the best? Yes, he is. He is amazing. <laughs> and like when I went to him about doing the garden, I thought there'd be a little bit of resistance. Like, hey, let's try to do it. We got some land. Let's use it. And then on the corner of the Harper, we're able to start the first community garden there. So, Kim, what have you been up to? Um, same old, same old. Uh, working all the time. Um, I now do the treatment portion of mental health court as well as drug court. So that's keeping me on my toes. Um, Taking care of the family. That's about it. <laughs> and you have four children, correct? I have four boys, yes. And how many are in college now? Um, only one is in college. One graduated oh. from Mizzou. Go Tigers. Uh, right. Is that where you went? I went to Mizzou for undergrad. I went to U of I for law school. But Mizzou had a huge win last night against Kentucky. Oh. Yes, huge. they did. So he's already grad. God, that Tom flies. And he's in Chicago now. And then I have Sam, who goes to Western Kentucky University. And then Brody's a senior. And Griffin is a freshman. Yeah, Griffin's is old. Now, I don't know if Griffin told you this. Allie is eighth grade. Okay. And um, we were at a volleyball game. And I'm like, my God, that kid looks like Kim. (laughs) And I looked at him. I'm like, hey, I'm not trying to be weird or nothing. But is Kim your mom? He kind of looked at me and kind of did like the eye kind of hustle thing. He's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm not trying to be a weirdo or nothing, but I used to work with her. He goes, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, they get that a lot. I'm sure your kids do too. Well, one. The others look like their dad. (laughs) Right. So, yes. Well, that's cool. Well, I'm really like, it's really surreal though. Like, I I, I almost feel like a fanboy having both of you in here (laughs) because Nick and I were talking before the show. You guys played... Such an integral role, you in, in, in my beginning of, of recovery, and you in my professional development, because when you came on after Tim left at the treatment center we both worked at, it was strange because when I, when I after leaving drug court and then going to work at the place where you used to do treatment, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of kickback about that. A lot of people were unsure, and it's and you always got to remember your roots, and you got to remember where you're at and all that stuff and how far you've come. And like we were talking pre-show, like someone's always going to be mad at you. Someone's going to like you or they're not going to like you. You just got to go with it. Like mm-hmm. live your best life. So with you, Judge Knapp, you know, your your history goes back quite a few years with, you know, you start off with, like you were saying, at Mizzou for your undergrad. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly uh, from, from a little bit of the research that I did, it was for finance and real estate? Correct. Correct. What, for you, with, with getting into law, what, was law always the, what you wanted to do? I did. Um, I 
knew that I wanted to go to law school when I was in high school. But my mom, um, who is a brilliant woman, um, she graduated from the University of Indiana, summa cum laude. She's top 10 in her class in business in, in the days when that wasn't necessarily something that you did um, as a woman. And mm-hmm. she said, that's fine, but you had a major in something that if you don't go to law school, you can still have a career. Kind of fall back on. Exactly. So um, I chose finance, and um, and then I added real estate later because a man came and spoke to one of my classes at Mizzou, and he was developing what is now all of St. Charles, where the um, where the riverboat is. There used to be nothing there, and he had bought all that property, and he was talking about developing it, and it was so interesting. And so I ended up adding that to what I was studying, uh, and now I drive through there, and I think of him and how incredible it was that he had that vision. But So I always knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, I had a grandfather who was a lawyer for the Veterans Administration. He died when I was two, so I, I didn't really know him. Mm. But I remember my grandmother always talking about him and, and what he did. And so for me, that was why I really wanted to go to law school. It's really cool. And, and U of I, right? U of I uh, was where I went to law school. I applied to a number of law schools. But U of I um, gave me a scholarship. Uh, and as we were talking about student loans <laughs> earlier before this podcast, um, when they offered me a scholarship, that was that was the game changer. Uh, had to go there because not having student loan debt is really important. So uh, I went there on scholarship, and then I ended up teaching. It was business law, but it was all law students who taught it. There's a professor, and then I was a teaching assistant. Cool. And so if you do that, they will pay for your tuition, and then they will also give you a stipend to help you cover your monthly expenses. So I was a teaching assistant um, in the business school at U of I. Cool, cool. So yeah, help out with some of that, some of that debt, and absolutely, and get to learn a few things too as you're there. Yes. So law. I mean, what was your first gig as an attorney? Well, um, I really wanted to graduate law school and make a whole bunch of money. As every lawyer, they, they won't say that, but that's what they wanted. And I majored, I took every corporate law tax class in law school. It was miserable, but I did it because I thought that's what I wanted to do corporate law. And I got my first job at a company. Um, it was a real estate title company working as their attorney. They were a wonderful group of people that I worked with. I, I loved all of the, the people that I worked with, but I did not love the work at all. At all. It was a miserable existence. And I happened to be walking along the street and I ran into a friend of mine who was a lawyer at the state's attorney's office in Madison County. And we were just talking and he's like, well, hey, there's some openings. You should apply to the state's attorney's office. I had no idea what the prosecutor's office did. I had no idea um, what was involved. But I was like, okay. So I applied and I ended up interviewing with Bill Hain. Um, and Bill Hain said, and there was also his, um, his right-hand man, Mark Benito, was in the office with him when I was interviewing. And, and um, Mark says, well, Bill, we got to talk about it. And, and Bill's like, I like her. And it was funny because, you know, I'd never been in a courtroom. I had no trial experience. And Bill says, I, I like her. She's got... She's got chutzpah. And so that was it. Bill decided he liked me and he was going to hire me. Thought I had what it 
what it took to make it in the office, and apparently he was right. So And Bill went on to become, become a, a senator, right? He was a state senator, and he and I together um, formed the Massa County Child Advocacy Center. He was a great boss. He was the kind of boss that you hope to have someday. When I was pregnant with my second child, Bill approached me and said, are you coming back to work? And I kind of laughed because I said, well, yeah, I'm coming back to work. Like, I I have to work. Um, And Bill said, well, if you want to take a day, you can. As long as you keep your full caseload, keep trying cases, keep winning, uh, I'll let you take a day, one day a week. So from the time my second son was born until the day I became a judge, I worked four days a week, but I would put in, I kept full caseload. I tried more cases than anyone else in the office. I never took advantage of it. I always made sure that, you know, anything I needed to do, I did it on the day I was off. I didn't take off from work. And it was, it changed how I got to parent my children. Mm. Um, and Bill had that vision and, and he was just, he was a great man to work for. Yeah, I've heard really great things about him. I've actually, you know, his, uh, I had lunch and met with his son a couple of times talk about things about Amari and what, what we're trying to do in the community. You know, the way he talks about his dad is the way that, you know, I might, might be a little bit different because that's father, but that right. same, that same jubilation and, and admiration. Uh, and you hear a lot of people, you know, the more I've gotten involved with the community, more I've kind of gotten involved with, you know, key players that have been able to make traction move and things like that. So that's really cool. And then did you, you ended up becoming an assistant state's attorney? Right. right? I was an assistant state's attorney. I worked in the juvenile division, um, handling abuse and neglect cases. And I did that for a couple years. And then um, they moved me up into felony cases. And it just so happens I started doing a lot of the child sex abuse cases, um, mainly because nobody else wanted them. And I said, I do. And I started doing those. And I tried a lot of those cases. That's kind of what I became known for um, before I started trying more of the violent crimes. Um, but And I worked my, I was there for 14 years. Mm. Um, and I still say to this day that trying, taking to trial the cases of child sexual abuse are the most difficult um, cases to take to trial. Is that is that why a lot of people didn't want, want those cases is just because of the I mean, the work that I do, and, and Kim, you can probably, because sometimes it can wear on you, oh, and you get, I mean, I can imagine just kids, like, you know, right. you look at kids, and they're innocent, and they're supposed to be taken care of, and protected, and then these, these bad things happen to them. Is that kind of like why a lot of people didn't? It's definitely emotionally tolling. It's also, um, from an evidence perspective, rarely do you get physical evidence of abuse of a child. Rarely. Mm. It's usually the child's statement that it happened. And so when you're going to trial and taking a case before them, you have to prep a child to go into court and, tr- and testify. Mm-hmm. And you have to make a case with no physical evidence, which people watch a lot of TV and they're like, well, where's the DNA? There's rarely DNA. So it's just a matter of trying to get those cases ready. And then you're in trial and you don't represent the family. You represent the people of the state of Illinois. But to that child, you are their attorney, and they rely on you to do it right, to go into the well of the court and fight for them with every arsenal of your knowledge and your practice and your power. And so you felt this pressure every time you walked into a case that you you needed to win it for them. So it was just, it's a lot to put on 
an attorney, you know, the pressure of that. And somehow I, I thrived on that. I did well with that, but not everybody does. Yeah. It definitely sounds like, you know, in the career, you kind of fast tracked yourself just, and, and I would think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just by listening to the story, some of it was, you know, what your mom went through and how she kind of pushed herself through to become successful. Sounds like that was kind of like the mold that you were kind of trying to live up to at least slightly. Oh, well, my mom is fabulous. Um, when she graduated from college, she, excuse me, met my dad in college and she married him while in college. And she ended up becoming a school teacher because um, going into business and being a mom and a wife was just not really something you did. So she started teaching school. She taught at Lewis and Clark Elementary in Wood River. Oh, really? Okay. Um, she taught math. And then at night, my dad died when I was little, and my dad and my mom, to try to basically raise four kids on a teacher salary was difficult. Mm -hmm. So she ended up um, teaching at Lewis and Clark Community College at night. So she taught um, economics and business at night, and then she would teach during the day. So she basically had two full-time jobs when I was growing up. Trying to take care of you guys. And yeah. Provide. Yeah. That is tough. And I mean, even seeing it to, in today, because, you know, there's a lot of resources today. Like, I don't think, you know, poverty today isn't the same it was 20, 20 30 years ago. And um, just to be able to have to do that and and raise kids and, you know, kids kids are tough. They teach you a lot, you know. Yes, they do. <laughs> they teach you a lot about, about yourself and about your patience and uh, like what's working, what's not working. Because then you moved into, I, I don't know, I know in 2007 is when... Is that right around when you became the judge, when you were up to yes. go up against somebody? Well, there are two types of judges in our state at, on the state level. There's a circuit judge and there's an associate judge. An associate judge are appointed by the circuit judges in your in your circuit. We have nine circuit judges, and those nine circuits appoint the associate judges. The circuit judges are elected. Um, so initially, I put in my application to be an associate judge. And I was appointed to be an associate judge by the Ninth Circuits. And I was very fortunate. I tried a lot of cases um, as assistant state's attorney. So by trying a lot of cases, I got to know the judges that worked, you know, circuit judges that were trying these cases. And they obviously liked my work and they liked what I was doing and that I was, you know, knew my, knew the law I was ethical, I was honest, I was hardworking, and I think that was what made them say, okay. Um, so I had some wonderful circuit judges that appointed me as an associate. But an interesting story, I, I found out that I was going to become an associate judge on July 5th of 2007. I was, in a week, I was to start trying a double murder case. There was two young men that were murdered down um, in the parking lot by Max Time Out Lounge. They were from St. Louis, and one of them, their father was a police officer from St. Louis. And the case had been pending for over three years. It had not been my case. It had gone through multiple prosecutors who ended up leaving the state's attorney's office after time. And um, the case never got to trial. So when I got the case, um, I met with the families, and they made me promise that I would try the case, that I would get the case to trial. And I still remember the boys' names, Melvin and Clyde. The two that deceased? Yes. Okay. And um, I met with the family, and um, another co a prosecutor tried the case with me, who's now a judge, Neil Schrader. 
And so I, I was all excited about becoming a judge, but I had this huge double murder going to trial in a week that this I... Was like one of your first cases as a judge? To, no, I was a prosecutor. Oh, you're a prosecutor. So I had to, I had to get this case to trial before uh, okay. I could become a judge. And when you become a judge, they're like, when can you take the bench? I'm like, well, I got to. I got this case to try. So I, Neil and I tried the case, took almost two weeks. We got it. We got convictions for it. And when the case was over, I got like five days off before I had to take the bench. And the day I was sworn in was I I was talking to the mother of of one of the victims. And I told her, you know, I was coming, coming to judge and, and I told her what day I was getting sworn in. And she told me that that was her son's birthday. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. That's really cool. Wow. So that was um, that was. So that's one of the last bad. cases as was, an, a prosecuting attorney, and you moved into your judgeship. Correct. Last mm. case. Wow. That was 2007. Then I remember. Uh, so those of you, we're going to get more into the story after after hearing a few minutes after we talked with Kim and stuff too. But you know, you were you presided over me when I was in drug court, yes. and I remember being at. CRC up in Irving and hearing the news in 2012 that you were, uh, I don't know if you won an election yeah. or something happened uh, in, in your career again. So I was an associate for five years. And then one of my mentors, uh, Chuck Romani, who was a circuit judge, was retiring. And so I put in to run for his spot. And so in 2012, you basically, when you're first running, it's a year of a year of going to everything, <laughs> um, going Make, to every, every parade. And, going like, hey, to, this is Judge Knapp right here. This right? is me. Going to every parade, going to every event that people ask you to attend. You try to go and just, you know, sending out mailers and putting up billboards and signs. And um, so I ran for election and then I won in 2012. And I was very fortunate because if I had not won, I still would have been an associate judge. It wasn't like I was completely out of a job. Right. Um, but I was very fortunate to to win in 2012. And I remember I, I remember where I was because I was excited for you. Aww, because, you know, you, you played a played a big role <laughs> in, in in my life. And I remember the first time that I met you, it was, Michael Wesley was representing me because there was some confusion of how the original charges happened. My family went down and try to get the detective to say, hey, no, this wasn't exactly what happened. And then they had to pull in Michael. And uh, I remember when we, because I was like, I was wanting to, because one of the big deals was to get my brother's bow and arrow back. And because, you know, after the incident happened, I felt horrible that I would do that to my brother. And um, so I was willing to do whatever. I'm like, Mike, you tell me, like, if I have to do time, I will, whatever we got to do to get my brother his bow. And then he was able to get me in front of you. And um, uh, Buckley, is that one of the guys? Jim Buckley. Oh, I remember Jim. He was super nice. And and because I felt horrible about where I was. I'm like, this isn't me. Because, like, when you get in trouble, especially, like, from, like, my past, you know, previous before uh, addiction and, and using and stuff, like, I, I was I was on a path, of a, a professional path that I thought I wanted in baseball and National Junior Honor Society. And then my world came to a crashing halt, my about my senior senior year in college, and then like I just got really angry at the world, not by like, violent, but like that anger turned inward, and I didn't like myself. And then of course the the I was prescribed the medication for my teeth, 
And then I'm like, oh, I don't have to be sad ever again. And it just turned into this. You know how it goes. You've been doing this a long time. And I remember seeing Buckley, and he just he made me feel like I wasn't the POS that I felt inside. But the, and then we took we signed the paper to get the bow out of evidence, and we went in front of you, and you're like, Mr. Beckel, I don't know if you remember this. Like, I don't think you realize how hard your attorney has worked for you to get into drug court. You scared the bejesus out of me. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't mean to do that. Sometimes it happens. It's it's funny because I don't see myself the way others see me. But I know that others see me that way because sometimes I'll hear people that I work with using me as their um, scare tactic. Well, if I have to tell Judge Knapp, I'm like, don't say that. <laughs> we don't. do that a lot. They do. If I have to, like, don't, but they do. They use the well, Judge Knapp or Judge Knapp said, and and then you know. But in my mind, I'm not that person. Hey, I'm okay with it because you help me, uh, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a lot. And we'll, we'll get more into that because there was a lot that went ha- that went on. Because when I first got in drug court, I wanted to do well. Um, but then the obsession of using just, it wouldn't leave. And you would try to say, okay, I'm just going to use a little bit. And I just, I want to get through not feeling well, or I want to get through, you know, want to just take a shower and I want to be happy. I'm tired of being depressed all the time. And that's just that whole perpetual cycle over and over and over. Because it got to the point where I was with uh, a gentleman, uh, I'll just say his first name, Gordon. And <laughs> I I was in sales prior. I was a pretty you know intelligent person when it came to talking with people. We call that super high functioning in our court. You were super <laughs> high functioning, which is dangerous for it, us. Yes. And it was because the Gordon, worst kind. <laughs> and, and I was a, a, a psychology buff and I loved psychology and I loved you know just whatever so I had and I love love Gordon to death but I had him pegged and and I knew when I would get in trouble I knew what to say and how to say it well then drug court said and, and Phil uh, I love him to death today too and they, they switched I guess there was a conversation about me and switched to Tim and Tim was Tim just knew and and it was probably for the best thing because I was so sick, I couldn't realize how I was destroying myself and I was destroying my family. Right. You know, because I always wanted to be a good father, always. Like, when I love my dad, he's had his own demons, but he would always come and go in my life, in and out, in and out. And I always told myself as a young kid, I was like, I'll never do that. But then I found myself doing that to my daughters, and I hated myself. That that self-loathing that comes with the addiction and like, and I can remember all the times that I would end up messing up or sometimes when you would take me into custody for, for my own life, I would just sit there and think, man, like, how am I going to get this together? Because I went to, went through suicidal spats. I went to uh, Kettler three different times, two failed suicide attempts because I felt there was no other way to get out. I'm like, well, if I'm, if I pass away and I'm gone, my family will eventually get over it, but they won't be worrying about me anymore. And like that psychology that gets in your head and, you know, it's. Drug court was difficult at first for me because I didn't realize that I had to take that switch. And it wasn't until, like, drug court started planting the seed. And then I went and ended up going to my first 12-step meeting with a 19-year-old who was, like, 12 years younger than me at the time. Maybe 10 or 11, something like that. And I remember seeing how he was, like, he was a big part of, you got to change the way that you think. And then by him saying that, I think about what you would say, what Tim would say, and then I would think about what Phil would say. 
And I'm like, oh, my God, part of my language. I'm like, I am full of shit. I realized I was full of shit. And I, I still have some of the letters that you wrote me when you were in drug court. <laughs> yeah. If they're really good, I save them. They're in a folder. I'll have to, awesome. I'll have to find them for you, <laughs> check those out, yeah. But I would like to say something about Gordon and Tim. So when I started in drug court as um, the judge, um, they were my two guys. Actually, there might have been someone else before them, but they're the two that I worked the most with before Kim. And Tim and Gordon offer different things in the court. Tim is more your, well, he is ex-military. He's a military guy. He's a very passionate, but, you know, walk the line kind of guy. Oh, yeah. And Gordon is more of your emotional healer, let me wrap my arms around you kind of guy. And they both serve a really important purpose and and offer different things to our court. And the thing about Gordon is sometimes when people aren't ready yet, and you weren't ready yet, you needed something different, Gordon knows that you're taking advantage of him. I mean, he knows. He's a really smart man. Yeah. Yes, um, but he can't change the way he wants to try to help you because that's that's, that's who he is. And we see that, and we all know that. So in my mind— you have to be at a certain level to be able to have Gordon as your as your counselor. Because if you're not there yet, you'll just take advantage of what he has to offer you. Yep. And so, and it's funny because it's mm-hmm. still that it's still that way to this day, Ty. Yes. There's people that they want to go to want to go to Gordon because they see what you saw. Like, oh, I could take advantage, but it's not taking advantage. Gordon knows, but it it's in his heart that he's going to give you every opportunity. Yeah. And what he has to offer. And what always he has. give you the benefit of the doubt. Always. That's what he always Whereas does. We don't always give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, and I know why. I mean, at least for me, speaking in my case, you know, and it was because um, there was a lot of times, you know, you wanted to do well. But remember one time you, you took me. I remember uh, Jordan, uh, not Jordan, uh, but Jonas. Uh, I won't say his last name, but he met me outside and I had my papers <laughs> for meetings, but I was. I, I was so nervous, I, and I ended up using that day, and I didn't want to go to court, but I did, and I had my paper, and I think I got caught using, and the person involved called Phil, and Phil is like very explicate on uh, his directions, his directives of, no, you're coming to court today. And I remember walking around, I was so under the influence, walking around the building trying to wear it off, and Jonas walked with me, uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember being in the courtroom, and you know, you telling me that you were going to take me in custody. I was like, but Judge Knapp, I got my paper signed. <laughs> like, and I remember going there and it wearing off and I just felt so foolish because that's usually when it happens is. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, and again, I'm here uh, alive, I think, because of you and the team that was involved. Gordon, including him and I, uh, he and I became really good friends later. You know, I've helped him do some nonprofit stuff. Yeah. With, uh, uh, what is it, Peter's Place, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. So, really cool. And we're going to get more into the depth of that story. But I wanted to kind of shift directions to you, Kim, if you want to lean in a little bit to the mic. Okay. Uh, so, you know, one and one thing I don't think I ever really learned working with you was what kind of got you in the industry. Because <laughs> you're really good at what you do. You pay attention. You. At least you make it appear that you're really good at multitasking. I think a lot of us <laughs> do. And... <laughs> You know, um, 
you know, dating back, like when did you get into the behavioral health uh, field? Um, I never dreamed I would do what I'm doing. Um, when I graduated from high school, I was pre-med, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I went to Carbondale and I started all my classes. That would be for pre-med. I'd done great in high school. It was not for me. I hated chemistry. I hated biology. I hated math and was not doing very well because it was my first time away from home and I was kind of spoiled at home. So I didn't do too great my first semester. And my parents said, you can go one more semester, but we're not paying for you. We're not helping you. You have to come home. Both of my parents, neither of them ever went to college. So for me, my mom was supportive. My dad, not so much. Why do why does she need to go to college? Why does she need to do this? She can run this. She can do, the, you know, whatever. I ended up um, graduating. I went back to school. I didn't take a semester off. I went to UMSL, and I graduated from there. For some reason, I became really interested in criminology and criminal justice. I wanted to do... CIA, FBI type of thing. I didn't want any kids, and that's what I was going to oh, do. Wow. <laughs> and um, my last year of school, um, I got pr- I got married, and then I quickly got pregnant. And so then I'm like, well, that's I'm not going to do that now. Um, I did my internship with the state of Illinois with parole, working with um, sex offenders. And I learned then that's not what I wanted to do. Um, And I would go, um, I would see all kinds of people in parole, juveniles and adults. And we would go to different facilities. Um, I worked for the, um, with my internship for the placement resource unit. And so we would place sex offenders that got out of prison. And I just knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. I was introduced to Chestnut um, because we would go there and see some of the kids that were on parole and when I graduated, they offered me a job. I, like I said, I was newly married. I had one kid. I had custody of um, my, at the time, husband's brother and sister. So we had our hands full. Mm. Um, and believe it or not, starting out there, I think I started making $17,000 is what my salary was. And I worked residential treatment with juveniles. Um, I loved it, but I was busy having kids, trying to start my family. Um, so then I ended up, I worked with the mail unit at Chestnut Residential, and then I ended up going to PRN while I was having children, and then they asked me to come back to work as what was called the engagement specialist at Chestnut. I worked there. I was kind of burnout. I worked there from 2000 until 2014, I believe. And then um, I went to work for Juvenile Redeploy. Um, They had me, I didn't know what Redeploy was. I didn't know what Juvenile Redeploy was, but I was like, okay, I'm tired of residential treatment, so I'm going to move to to do this. Well, I started the program um, in the outer counties, so I started Juvenile Redeploy in um, Washington, Randolph, Perry, and Monroe counties. And those those are down south of Madison County, right? They are. And it was very hard because they were very set in their ways. They were very um, conservative. They, everyone, I remember my first case, the kid had stolen a golf cart and they wanted to send him to prison. And I was like, no, 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 we can't, you know, we can't do this. So I worked, I worked there for a few years. I had clients in both Madison County and St. Clair County as well. 
And then actually Brent Cummins, who I had worked with the first time I worked at Chestnut, had come to me and asked me if I'd be interested in um, coming to work for them, Madison County Drift Court. So, and I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember when, because Tim had left drug court, Gordon was still there, but not right, not in charge of everything. And we had gone through a couple people and it, it wasn't working. And drug court won't work if you don't have a multidisciplinary team that is yes. cohesive together. Right. Oh, absolutely. It, it just won't. And I got a phone call from Chestnut saying, hey, we're thinking about hiring Kim Clark. What do you think? <laughs> and the interesting thing is Kim and I knew each other because mm-hmm. our her oldest son and my middle son are best friends. They were friends in high school, friends through college, still still great still, friends. Still great friends. Yeah. Um, so I knew Kim from from Aiden and Logan mm-hmm. is really how I knew them. And and every time I had boy clothes that I needed to get rid of, I would go <laughs> I would go and drop a trash bag full of boy clothes off on Kim's door. I, I would just I would just leave them on the door and then from the clothes fairy from the clothes fairy. <laughs> and so when they called me and said we're thinking about hiring Kim, what, what do you think? I'm like fabulous. Now I'd never worked with Kim. Right. I had no idea her value and she's invaluable. Thank and I you. say that with a hundred percent sincerity and putting you with the, both the mental health court and drug court. Well, I know is completely taxing for you. Having one person handling those two courts has just been a game changer. I digress. So anyway, when they called, I'm like, yeah, she'd be great. Let's do it. Because I knew, I knew Kim's personality. I knew Kim and I thought that's what we need. So thank you. Fabulous. Well, and to be, when I first started out saying, yeah, I think I'm going to do drug court, thought about it, went back and forth. I didn't know you were the judge for drug court. I We knew each other personally, but I had no idea. Oh, and, that's like spiritual almost. That gives me goosebumps. It was weird. And then Brent, Brent Cummins was like, well, I don't know if you have ever met her, but the judge is Judge Kyle Knapp. And I was like, oh, yep, I sure do know her. And so it all kind of... And when was that? Because it was 2016 when I started um, working there. It was February of 2017. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Right. And so I've been there ever since. Yeah, and you, you were <laughs> instrumental in part of my my professional development, too, because at the yes. time I had Amari was just kind of, we, we were founded in 2015, got our tax-exempt status in 2016, uh-huh. but there was juggling of that. There was juggling of trying to do this, expectations of this job, trying to make sure that you keep things ethic, ethically uh, uh, bound to to mm-hmm. that type of scope of what you're doing when you're working with them. Because I remember when I uh, when I first started working there, and I went to my first group, and you know Tim had me kind of introduce myself, and I told him I'm like you know, um, and I I used to be a drug court client, so I know a lot of the tricks, and a lot of their eyes got really big. And um, and my message to them was like, I just want to see you succeed. And drug court has helped me tremendously. So I'm going to hold you up to the expectations of the court because there was a lot of things that was hard for me. And, and Kim, you you were not only just a boss. Speaking of bosses, ones that you want to have, she was definitely one of them. Because I'd have to come to you and I would toil with these things. Like when one thing happened, when a drug court client tried to throw me under the bus because mm-hmm. I caught another client at their house right. and the client in the car told one of the clients what I said was, and it wasn't anything bad. It was just, no. I think, I'm like, I hope to God that wasn't a drug deal because that's what it felt like. 
Right. And it turned into this big old mess. And, and you were very supportive when a lot of that was going on. And um, and I get it. And I understand why and, and all that stuff. But you can you get put yourself in vulnerable situations. And, you know, I was always very transparent with you. Like if I was thinking about certain things and like, like I would ask you, like, well, what would you do and what, what could I do? So, you know, I can't thank you enough for that because at 2016 to before I left to go join the as the program coordinator for Merck, um, it was it, it helped me shape um, an understanding uh, of a different side of things. And um, I think it really helped me become uh, better of who I am today as an executive director leadership for my team through Amare and through Renegade Gardens and all that stuff of the good things that I do. Because, I mean, like with Simple ITSM, for example, they're pulling me in to help develop their sales department because they want the culture of what I've been able to build at Amari with sure. uh, multicultural people, different ideas, and how do you make that possible for everybody to work together, like you say, cohesively. Right. And um, so I can't thank both of you enough for playing such an integral role. Um, you know, you were more after uh, she kind of laid it on me and says, hey, listen, um, I don't know if you remember the uh, judging at the last day uh, we met negatively in the courtroom. Um, I ended up like I ended up using I didn't go to group. I remember the day. This is the day I think I turned my, my life over to God. I really do. I get goosebumps when I talk about it. Uh, uh, those of you listening that are, are uh, avid listeners of the show, you've heard this a few times, but. You know, that day I didn't go. I used the night before. I was depressed. I really was contemplating suicide. I said, I can't do this. And there was a guy that was at the house, at my mom's house, in East Alton behind the old quick trip before it came. Circle K. And she she got up and says, listen, this guy's got to go. And as soon as he heard she was going to call the police, it was like puff of smoke. I'm like, where the heck did he go? He got out of there so fast. And this was a time I finally believed my mom of all the years of all the trials, tribulations that she would, she's like, I don't want you here when I get off for whatever reason that day I believed her every other time I would take her hostage in her house. Cause I needed somewhere to go. And cause deep down I was sensitive, like, well, I can't be homeless. You can't let me sleep under the viaduct. And, um, and I remember her and I'm like, okay, the house was quiet. She ended up going to work. Uh, no TV was on, the ceiling fan was on. So it's like you can hear the ceiling fan, uh-huh. a little chain, clink, clink, and you're just in that moment. My brother's dog, who I saved from getting viciously attacked by another dog, ever since that day he like was my best friend and he followed me everywhere. Uh-huh. So you know how dogs, they, they sense things, I believe. And he came up and put his snout under my hand and wiggled his way, mm-hmm. and he looked at me and he did one of those dog little... And I look at him and I'm like, and I'm starting to tear up and I don't even really know why. And I'm like, I get it, buddy. I'm like, yes, I feel like shit. And <laughs> I remember looking outside, and it was a blue blue sky, white clouds, just a beautiful day. Mom had an oak tree uh, outside the window. It was just blowing in the wind. For whatever reason, I thought of freedom, freedom that, that I believe God would want us all to have, to, to love who we are, love our neighbors, and, and be comfortable in our own skin. And I, I fell on my knees and just started bawling. And I prayed to God, I think, generally for the first time, saying if there's probably going to get choked up about it still today. Um, if there's any reason for me to be here, save me. If not, take me out of this life because I can't keep living this way. And then after that happened, Phil calls. And he's like, well, why haven't you been in group? And I'm like, I had nothing to say to him because I was just like, I said, I don't know. He's like, you didn't want to go. I'm like, you know what? You're right. I don't. 
I don't even want to be here. And he's like, well, I want you to turn yourself in. And I'm like, okay, well, can I at least go to detox first? Cause I don't want to do this in jail. I was like, I'll turn myself in. And he said, okay, fine. He let me, my mom got home from work. She's like, well, why aren't you gone? I told you to be gone. I'm like, will you please take me to detox? And I did, I went down, it was a non-medical I'm a big Rocky fan, so why I'm in there, I'm thinking of the uh, <laughs> Gonna Fly High Now song, the dun da da dun da, da I kept saying, champ or chump, Ty, you can do this, you can do this. We got through. Uh, I got picked up. I went to, went and had uh, dinner or lunch, whatever you want to call it, late lunch, early dinner, and um, came in, and I turned myself in, hit the buzzer, turned myself in, and I was told I was only going to be there a week, but I ended up staying two weeks, <laughs> which <laughs> is okay. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. And I remember when they brought me in front of you guys, because you guys did everything you could. You guys tried to work with me. Um, I think everybody believed that I wanted to get better, but I, I was just, a, I struggled being suicidal and all these other things. And you gave me the three options. I don't know if you remember those three options. It was do uh, put you on supervision, I think it was, to where you have to go to seven meetings uh, a week and we'll reevaluate you and see how you're doing. Um go to the Arch House or go to CRC. And I think Gordon helped advocate part of that because he knew that I, w- I was considering CRC. Before he even drove court, I looked into CRC because I knew my life was a mess. And uh, I didn't even have to think about it. I said, you know what? I want to go to CRC. You guys ended up getting me out of there. Uh, one of the workers, um, we had like a week before I had to get there. You guys said, don't even worry about coming to group. Stay at your house. And you had the, the worker from uh, uh, Chestnut come and check on me. And Phil would call me every day, and I went, and that was it. And uh, I prayed every day, every night since that day. I started making my bed. Um, I started examining things that I did, and I don't know if I've ever told you guys this story, and this is a big part. So at CRC, you know, they do a lot of the way they feed everybody is they use the uh, food bank uh, from Springfield because they were also a food pantry, so they would get stuff to hand out. Um, you'd have to do chores, house uh you have to be a, if you wanted to do uh, certain jobs, you could become like a, a chore monitor, which sucked because, you know, right. trying to take care of other people that are trying to heal as well. But it gave you an opportunity for leadership. You're like, you could watch, you say, man, why are they sweeping that way? And you would go talk with them. They've never, never swept. And it gave you an opportunity to say, listen, I'm not trying to be a, a, an ass or nothing. Can I show you how to do this? And you would have to do that as chore monitor. And I did that a couple of times. But then, you know, through the food pantry, you would have to uh, get the food and bring it there. And before I became the, the pantry manager, because I ended up doing both, and I, I really learned about giving back, which took me to my roots of being a kid. My uncle worked with Officer Operation Blessing, me loving JFK and Martin Luther King. Right. Virginia Kirkpatrick, Operation Blessing. Yeah. God rest her soul. She was just a, a fabulous lady. Yeah, and, and giving back. And I remember, and I remember the the pantry manager they got a single packet hot and this is always funny when I tell the story cheese it's hot and spicy I love that's like I love hot and spicy cheese it she loves toasty don't think I, I do. don't forget I do. every time I see toasty cheese it's <laughs> and, and, and Walmart I always think of Kim Clark and this is how powerful people that come in your lives when you let them yeah. in yeah. and you you know you get to get that uh, get to reciprocate that back and forth um, and so she brought me, it was like the individual box where it had like nine of them in there, still cellophane around it. She brought it up like it was a drug deal. She brought it up to my room and she wasn't supposed to be up there because she was a female. Men stayed on top, women stayed on bottom. She's like, hey, I got these cheeses for you. 
And I'm like, okay, cool. I like, I really like him. And I remember putting him in my little armoire where all my stuff was. And I sat on my bed and I was journaling or something or maybe reading. And I remember feeling guilty. I'm like, I don't need that. Like, because I, in my active addiction, I took so much. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I can't do this. I prayed about it. I'm like, I can't. I'm like, I took him back down. And she's like, what are you doing? I brought them to you. I'm like, listen, like, I'm not going to take. I was like, I've taken so much in my life. And I was like, if they're here, they're here. Like, I'm, I'm still going to be fed. And it was really revolutionary for that, just that thought process. Because deep down, grandma, who raised me for about six, seven years, always taught me those things. Right. But it clicked. And then things started clicking from there, working with my sponsor. Um, Thanksgiving, you know, uh, we have a food pantry. So it was a week after Thanksgiving, and an, uh, an elderly woman came there to get some food. I remember packing her box, and I would carry it out for them to the car. And I remember going there, and she popped her trunk, and I put it in there. I said, ma'am, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's not as much as it was as we typically give. Um, we haven't had a chance to get to the, the pantry, and we kind of ran out a lot of stuff. She grabbed me by my arm, and it literally felt like my grandmother. She said, sweetie, she looked me in my eyes. She said, it's more than I had this morning. And, like, all these things started happening. Like, when you're awake and you turn on that switch, yeah. and you start listening and paying attention to your surroundings. And I think that's one for me. A lot of my healing started to to happen from being abandoned or feeling like I was abandoned by my father and even my mother um, and going back to that and then wanting to make you guys proud and my kids proud. And I realized how to do that. Just, you know, make yourself available, admit your mistakes and try to move forward. Good begets good. Um, I I really Mm -hmm. think I try to say it in drug court and I don't think I say it eloquently enough to make it make sense to them, but. Bad things happen to everyone. That's just part of life. But I also believe in karma. And I believe that when you try to do good things, when you try to be a good person, when you try to offer that to everyone around you, I feel like that will come back to you. And and it'll it'll multiply. And it'll keep happening. And I think your life, Ty, is a perfect example of that. I think, you know... Yeah you've been given an opportunity and you're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make it work this time. And now you're offering up your good to someone else and you keep spreading your good and it keeps coming back to you because, um, no one's giving you handouts, you're earning it. But I, I still believe that the good begets good. And, and that's why, um, you have to keep trying because eventually it clicks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I, I'm so glad that you guys didn't give, give up on me. You know what I mean? Like I knew like that two weeks in, in the, but I felt that peace for whatever reason that two weeks in, in jail and County didn't seem like two weeks. Like I remember one of the guys that was in the same cell as me was like, why do you keep smiling? Cause I was reading like, a, uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, 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 not Alex Jones. That's the, that commentator guy, but, uh, who's the author? I'll think of it later. Anyways, the main character is Alex and it's like a, a suspense thriller. Um, I remember just reading that book and, you know, reading the whole thing and being intrigued. And I wasn't worried about drugs anymore. It was like it almost was lifted for me. And I didn't care. And I didn't think about it. was like almost like the cravings were just removed. And I remember the guy's like, why are you smiling? I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, I feel safe. I feel safe for the first time in many, many years. The feeling that I had, I always tell people that I had when I lived with my grandmother for about seven years. I always felt safe with her. And then on the ball field when I played baseball. Just that your safe space, and I felt good, and um, you know it was uh, Alex Cross. 
Yes. Yes. Look that at is it. you. Was, <laughs> those synapses are firing today. Yes, Ty. Alex Cross. Yeah. There's some great movies. Morgan Freeman plays the, the title character, Alex, um, Alex Cross, and and um, when and Ashley Judd plays in one of them. There's there's like yes. three different ones, but yep. um, yeah. great books, great movies. Yeah, because those books were like and kind of like how I adopted my writing style in, in the first book that I wrote, and it was very quick, and I, I kept the right details, and his books kept me moving along, right. and there's always something going on, and, um, you know, and when I wrote that book, and, and, like, when you actually read it, I'm like, oh, man, I didn't think you would actually read it. Oh. And uh, I read, you wrote that book, which was phenomenal, and then um, we just had a graduation, and one of the girls that graduated, right. um, she wrote a book of poems, which I still have on my desk, and I'm still waiting to write that thank you note. I, I'm going to. <laughs> um, it's phenomenal. Great. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's And she published it. Like, I think she did it herself. She did. Um, phenomenal. Amazing. amazing. So talented. So talented. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And, you know... Uh, I, and I believe creativity is a big part of our healing, whether it's writing, whether it's doing stuff like this, whether it's drawing, even if you're not good at it. If it brings you excitement and joy and you're doing it, do it until, um, what is that one saying? You know, you know, do do your best until you know better. When you know better, do better. You know, kind of take, right. taking, I know that's more about morality and the way we may potentially treat people, but in, in the things that we do, you know, I think gives us, can help us find purpose. Like, Absolutely. You know, and writing, like, I never would have thought Fred Pollard asked, like, hey, would you want to do a column for the advantage? I'm like, oh, man, really? Like, I don't know. What would I do? He's like, I don't know. Talk about, you know, things in life and how to change. And I gave up. Uh, I can't remember the original title I had. And then he came and was like, well, why don't we call it Retor- Restoring the Soul? And Fred has been become a great friend of mine over the years. And Anytime I'm in downtown and I can stop by his shop, I'll stop by and see him. And... um Writing and, and trying to help people, like we have one person that's working with us through our AmeriCorps uh, agreement, and they want to kind of write, and they're scared, and, and you know I'm right. Katie, uh, yeah, Katie, Katie, um, Katie Rexford, and I said just write, yeah, like I'm going to tell you like it was told to me, just write, read and write. If you want to write, don't worry about how if you're going to be good or not now, you know, right. write something, put it away. Stephen King would always say. Write it, put it away for six months, bring it back out, and read it. And if you think it's good, it's good. If you think it's crap, then maybe it's crap, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just the creativity. Um, and, like, I, I definitely want to check out that book. So uh, after the show, I'll have to get that from you. For um, sure. But, yeah, and, and what's funny with the book, when you gave me the review, I used the hell out of that thing. <laughs> I'm like, look what Josh Knapp said about this. Like, when I would do, like, when I'd go to, like, because uh, it's really weird when you write it. It, you know, you'll go and you'll try to, people will want you to sign them. Like, well, why do you want me to sign? I'm really nobody. And then they start asking you a bunch of questions that you don't even really have any idea about. Like I had one guy uh, ask me about what's the best way to um, invest his money in real estate. I'm like, I have no idea. Have you read my book? That's <laughs> you know? really funny. Um, but yeah, so, you know, everything, you know, coming, you know, kind of uh, full circle with here. You know, waiting three years to have this opportunity. I've tried to get Kim on too, and, well, and <laughs> so I came up. I we staff before we go out for drug court every day. We staff, and um, I came up and I said, 
I did it. I signed up. I went online, filled out the form. I picked my day. I'm doing it. I'm like, Ty has been on me for years to do this, and I'm doing it. And Kim goes, he's been asking me, too. Can I... Can I just come when, when you go? Knock it out at the same time. And, and, yeah. I, and I'm like, absolutely. Yes. She's like, what day? She goes, I'm going to go online and fill it out right now. So we were kind of laughing that, you know, we, we wrote it on the calendar. Right. Yes. yes and uh, I appreciate it. And a lot of people have been to add, and it's really not just me, like out of the blue, people would ask me like, hey, Kim, you should get Judge Knapp on. Mm-hmm. They say you should get Kim on. And I'm like, well, I've tried. I don't think they like me, though. <laughs> No, 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 no. No, you guys are very busy. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm being melodramatic, but you know, it's um, it is. It's cool to sit here and just kind of talk about things, and I think that's what makes the podcast that that we do so special because it is interview based, but it gets to the point where it's just a casual conversation. Yeah, and it's I almost I like it because it allows people to feel like they're a fly on the wall just listening. Right. Um, because there's a lot of things that like I didn't even know about. Your love for criminology and uh-huh. how it all, and then you guys are best friends, like all, <laughs> you know, and like all of a sudden here you guys are working together, right. and um, you guys are you guys are helping move mountains in, in Madison County, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna. So I told you that I I, I went out and I put this uh, question about Judge Knapp. Um, I don't have time to read all of them because there's like 42. Oh. So I'm gonna pick a couple, and I'm gonna read them just as they are. Um, so, again, I asked, like, if you could – here, I'll tell you. I put uh, – if for those of you that completed Madison County Drug Court under Judge Knapp, if you can ask her one question or tell her one positive thing, what would it be? I like how you said positive. <laughs> I like how you clarified that, Ty. Hey, I've been writing for papers for a while. Specific. And I, I, and I, all know, I know all about the wordplay. No. Uh, so here is – um, Nick Downs. It meant so much to me to have someone like her treat me with so much respect and dignity and to show me so much genuine heartfelt concern for me. It always kind of stuck in my head that I want to make Judge Nat proud. Drug court saved my life. No exaggeration. No doubt. I'll eternally be thankful for Judge Knapp. Aww. Here's Brianna. Um, I always met, She's my co-host on the live show. I always mispronounce her last name wrong, uh, Liljenberg. Uh, but she put, I would tell her that she saved my life, uh, a life that went from nothing to absolutely extra no, extraordinary. Also, if you're interviewing Nap at all, please include your co-host. <laughs> I told her, I'm like, again, this will be, uh, I'll ask you guys. I don't want to put you on the spot. I'll ask you after the show. Uh, uh here, since we were talking about Katie earlier, but I would tell her that she is an amazing woman for doing what she does because people don't get that opportunity. She saves lives. I would thank her for saving my life and giving me a chance to show her in this community that I can change. She made it possible to, to, for me to make a difference and become a woman to be proud of. I'm almost going to cry just reading all these. Uh, <laughs> she gave me my life back, my family, my dreams back. She is the reason I am standing here today. I would ask. I would ask her. Why did she give a person like me the chance? And how can I help her help her? Wait. And how can I help her with the program? And then what can I do to help with making this change? So I guess we can if you want to, if you want to answer Katie's question, we'll do the first one. Why did you give a person like her the chance that you did? Um I I tell everyone when they come in the drug court um that 
they deserve to be happy. Every single human being deserves a chance to be happy. And some people got, they just got an unlucky draw, whatever reason um, they did. And some people handled it differently than others. But I think when people come into the drug court, for many of them, they are broken. They've lost their soul to some degree. They've lost um, so much, their jobs, their families, um, their dignity, um, the respect of themselves and their their family. Um, they've lost loved ones, people they care about to addiction. So, I mean, they've lost so much. And I just feel like any person that's willing to take a chance on the drug court deserves a chance to succeed. Mm-hmm. They deserve me and Kim and all of the other incredible drug court um, team um, who are all phenomenal, and I say this, they choose to be a part of that team. Those probation officers are um, highly qualified with lots of experience, and they could go and work in any other division in, in the probation department, which they choose to be in the drug court because they believe in it. And, and it's a lot, like you talked about earlier, emotionally, it's a, it's a taxing court for them. They could go do a job that isn't so emotionally taxing or investing, I should mm-hmm. say. They don't have to be so emotionally invested because it won't work. If your probation officer isn't invested in you, I don't, I don't think it works. Mm-hmm. So um, they could all go someplace else, and they don't. They stay, um, and they work in the court because they're invested in it, and they're invested in you and the participants in the court. So I think that every person deserves a chance, and um, there was a young woman I won't give her last name, but her name was Casey. And Casey came into the court as broken as anyone. And um, she'd been it before and failed. She came back. Um, she was she was not gonna she was not gonna make it. She was gonna die. And um, she was standing in front of me in black and white and shackles. And she just looked so broken. And she said, "I, I said, will you go to treatment?" And she'd gone and failed before. And she's like, yeah, I'll I'll go. And she was so against it before, so against it. She goes, I'll go. And I said, okay. I said, well, who who can we call to get your clothes? And she said, I don't have any. The only, all I have is the clothes on my back. She had been living under, literally, I think, under a viaduct. I mean, she, she was, so we got together clothes and we put together um, a care basket for her to go to treatment and I wrote her a note, um, and I put it in the in the luggage for her. Um, and we also sent her with Oreos, which they wouldn't let her keep. I don't know why, but that stuck out in my mind. And um, she sent me a a letter back, um, and she had a picture of the note that she kept in her mirror. And um, she's like, "I don't know why you guys cared about me. Yeah. I don't know why. I I've never had someone just offer to help me just to be nice, just because they cared. There was always a a catch to it. And she said, I don't know why you guys picked me. I don't know why you chose me, but I'm so glad you did. And that was years ago. And Casey is doing, She's still doing phenomenal. She got her son back. She went to long-term treatment and stayed up there. And she still occasionally sends me a DM on Facebook. Um, and she is like her doing well. If, if nothing else, like, the few success stories that I get to hear about makes it all worth it. Heck yeah. Good stuff. I'll read uh, one or two more um, 
This is from Megan. Thank you for showing me that there is another way to live and there is a way out. I will forever be grateful. And this one's kind of on the, on the funny side. Thank you for introducing uh, the Vivitrol shot. It's like my car insurance today. <laughs> <laughs> that is That's funny. awesome. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> let's do one more. Um, again, a lot of them are overwhelming. Grateful, grateful, grateful. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I would tell her how incredib- incredibly grateful I am. She believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. She gave me the chance to have an amazing life that I could never have imagined having to become the woman I am proud to be today. Aw. So, so, nice. so I was um I was at Alt Memorial a week and a half ago. I had to have some outpatient surgery, and I was in recovery. And a nurse comes up to me, <laughs> and she says, "Judge Knapp," and immediately I'm like, Urgh. like <laughs> internally I'm like, "Ugh," because you know you're kind of vulnerable. Yes, yeah. Right after you're laying there in a gown, you know, you, IV, and you're kind right. of, and she's like, "Judge Knapp, I I heard you were here," and I was like. Um, And she's like, I just had to come say thank you. Mm. Um, And I'm not going to say who she, it was her ex-husband, and she was just saying how great he's doing. And then she showed me a picture of him with their daughters. And he's doing so great. And she's like, and it's because of the drug court. It's because of the drug. And I was so happy that he had an ex-wife who's so proud of him and still wants him to, like, is supporting him. I think that's phenomenal. And, um, and I look up and the other two nurses who are there standing there, they're both starting to cry because she's talking about how grateful she is and how the drug court saved his life. And I said, well, I'm really glad the drug court was there for him when he needed it. But I will tell you, he saved his life. Yes. Cause that's what I always, you say. have to make the choice mm-hmm. to, yeah, you have to want it. Yeah. If you don't want it, and maybe now, like you went through it a couple times, Ty, right? Yeah. yeah. You had to want it. <laughs> a couple, sure. So and it's not easy. It no. is a hard yeah. program when but you're what, used to doing, you know, the same thing every day. And then you you have this program that holds you accountable for everything. <laughs> it's yeah. hard. But once you get it, it's it's smooth sailing. You just, oh, my God, why, I do, why wasn't I doing this from the beginning? Right. Like, you know, and um, it's hard to see the sun through the clouds. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, next month, November, November 13th will be a decade since I completed successfully. Like I was already, they, they didn't get me my paperwork from uh, uh, Chestnut until sure. November 13th. But that was a uh, decade since uh, I, I had see. completed. I've been clean and sober uh, since August 19th, 2012. Um, quit that April was 10 years, no nicotine. And, um, you know, a lot of those things you start realizing, well, I want to keep investing in myself. You know, I always tell people like, if you realize what it, what it means to take money, cause you know, money is a big part of our, our world today. Yeah. Um, but as like, if you can take that and you want to invest in yourself outside of money, cause yes, money has its, you know, things that you need it for, but to be truly happy, you don't need a lot of that because you just want to be able to love who you are. If you want to invest and you, just like money, you take it, you invest in you, and you will get dividends. Uh, you really will. And, you know, I talk a lot like that about uh, even our staff, you know, because uh, we try to use uh, Amari as a learning opportunity as well, uh, you know, because we can be their landing spot. I, I tell the team all the time, like, if I want to make sure that you're ready, if another opportunity comes that you can improve yourself, I want to make sure that I and Amari as a whole did the best that we could to invest in you for you to move on to the next chapter of your life. 
And their success only emphasizes Amari's success. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I see. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part part of how I got her to uh, agree. I sent Alida after her. I'm like, hey, I can't make it to the drug <laughs> court. If you see true. Judge Knapp, she's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, will you please do it? She's like, okay, fine. For you, I'll do it. Aww. She did. She came up to me after the drug court. She goes, hey, I love that. that She'd given me a letter that you had sent earlier. It wasn't a letter. It was like a form. Like to, I left that on your desk, and Ty asked me to ask again. <laughs> And we just had this wonderful um, graduation, graduation with yes. some great people graduating, and I was so happy for everybody. And I was like, "Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll and I'll go down." And and I did. I went down the next day, and I yeah. filled out the stuff online. So I was really excited. I'm like, "Yes, finally!" <laughs> and finally. I had a whole strand of texts from Ty for like a year. And I'm like, "I'm gonna get back to him. I'm gonna." I never deleted them. I'm like, "I'm going to get back with him." And then when Judge Knapp said she was coming, I'm like, "Okay." Well, and All I right. want to be clear, Ty, so that you don't ever feel like your heart hurt about this. Right. Um, I love being the judge of drug court. It's why I do it. Um, I don't have to do it as a circuit. I get to pick, like, what I want at my dockets I work. Mm -hmm. And I stay with drug court because I care passionately about it and the people in it. Um, And I care passionately about mental health court. But Judge Berkeley really wanted to do mental health court. And he's a circuit. And I'm like, absolutely. And share the love if you can. Mm -hmm. Um, But I get asked a lot. um, And... It's nights, um, it's weekends, it's Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's <laughs> and and I have a job that is a full time gig. Like mm-hmm. I'm there at eight and I'm leaving at four thirty five and I I usually sit at my desk and work through my lunch hour just because right. there's so much to get done and I just don't have the time to get it all. So um because you get asked all the time, saying no is really difficult. Like, I don't want to say no. I don't want to disappoint right. people. Um, I'm, and I want to talk about all the awesomeness that is drug court and and the Child Advocacy Center and, you know, all these great things. So it's really difficult um, to learn how to balance balance it all. So it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It was more just a, whew, one more thing. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I was ready. I was yeah. ready when I was approached. <laughs> yeah, I didn't take it personal, but I knew I had to be persistent. Because you did. I knew I had to be persistent because of how busy you are. And, like, you know how it is. Like, things go off our well, radar and we forget. And Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have um, – I get emails from some people that graduated from drug court. Or they stop by to see me, but they need something. Um, and I get it. I'm kind of their – their only contact that's really given them, but they need things that I don't know that I'm capable of giving them. They want their charges dismissed that weren't part of the original, you know, um, they want letters of recommendation, which I write. Yes, I do. I write them. Um, and I don't just send a generic one. They're always personal and that takes time, but I got people that they always want something from me. Um, and if I can do it, I will. And if I can't, I have a hard time saying no because I don't want to disappoint them because I feel like they've worked so hard, you know. Yes. Um, and I've got a couple of people right now that they're wanting, <laughs> they're wanting something from me, right. um, and it's it's difficult. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I can only imagine. You know, it was just everything, and 
high profile cases outside of what you might be doing in drug court and I hope you're, you know, we, we learned in the industry self-care. I hope that's part of your regimen. It is. I'm a runner. I You'll see me running all the time. Hey, I was a runner one time, too. No. <laughs> so I'm, that's, I, I love to run. I love to work out. So uh, that's, that's. Do you do any, like, boxing or anything? No boxing. boxing. Um, I'm too old for boxing. Okay. I, but I do, I do, like, um, hit training and stuff and oh, weightlifting nice. and then, but running's really my love. Cool. Yeah. I am. Uh, I'm really excited that guys came, and you know we're kind of wrapping up towards the end. Uh, Kim, is there anything that you wanted to kind of end with? Um, I don't think so. Um, except for just drug court is a really good program. Um, when I started in 2017, I was a little terrified because I had always worked with juveniles, and then I was working with adults. But it's pretty much the same. In fact, some of the Adults I work with now, I worked with as juveniles. So it's pretty much the same. Um, I love drug court. I love mental health court. I've been doing mental health court for a short time. Not a a year and a half, maybe. And I didn't think I would love mental health court, but I do love mental health court. Um, And I always tell the clients they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones that are succeeding. A lot of times... They're used to not being successful, so they mm-hmm. give us all the credit. But I, I love, I love what I do. I really do. We have a lot of clients, and there's a lot of frustration a lot of times. Um, but I think our team, our drug court tra- team, and our mental health court team are top notch. I think we all get along. We all have different views, but agree to disagree. And if we didn't have the team we have. I wouldn't be able to stay doing what we do because it is so stressful. Right. Um, but I love it. I do. I really do love it. It's amazing. Good stuff. Any any final thoughts for you? Well, everything Kim said, ditto. <laughs> um, and I would just like to say to anybody that might be listening that isn't sure, um, that's in the throes of their addiction, that you are valuable. You are important to our world and our community. And... It doesn't matter what you've done to put you where you're at right now. You can get out of it. You don't have to be a part of drug court to be successful, um, to fight your addiction, and to become the kind of person that, I always say this in drug court, when's the last time you've looked in a mirror and been proud of who you are and what you've accomplished? So it's never too late. It doesn't matter where you're at. You, You absolutely have value. You're important, and I hope that you will... Um, reach out if if you need it. And I will add on to that really quick. A lot of our clients, you know, they'll go back out and use, or they may not succeed in drug court. And more times than not, um, they come back later and apologize for how they were in drug court and thank, I'm sure they thank you too, Judge Knapp, for me recommending to Judge Knapp. They're going to die. You know, I'll say they're going to die. We have to do something. They're going to die. And they hate us. They hate us when we're putting, you know, recommending them to go to jail or saying. Or residential. Residential treatment, either one. But I've had so many people, and it's always so, I'm so grateful when they come back and thank us. Just, we weren't that bad. You know, they hated us at the time. They went back out and used. I mean, handfuls of people that then they got their, their life back together, and they said, you know, I 
went back out and used, but I always remembered something about talking with whoever it was, a clinician, Judge Knapp, probation, and that's what got me back to wanting to be clean and wanting to, you know, live a clean mm. life. So that's always really nice. Yeah, I've heard uh, quite a few people say that too, like they may not have succeeded, but they credit the, the time that they were there, right. that they, they learned something that they could at least apply to their life. Yes. They took the tools that they were given and finally put them to use. Well, I'm I'm super stoked about this whole interview to be able to sit down with both of you. It's good to see both of you yeah, in person. And um, Ty, you're a huge success story, and I know I know you know that, but you're also an inspiration to a lot of people. So keep doing what you're doing. Yes, yeah, we we will uh, definitely keep doing that. And if there's ever a way that Amari could work with Drug Court and help you guys, however, um, you know we're always there because we have like three or four staff that have went through uh, uh, drug court programs. And sure. There's always this wanting to give back to it and help it succeed, as Katie kind of alluded to her her uh, her question. And, um, you know, we're there right around the corner, whatever we can do. We've done some stuff with Jackie and yes. all that. So, uh, again, this is, I know a lot of people are really excited about this. Um, that kind of put the pieces together. Uh, Bree, you know, she knows. And uh, I know everybody's kind of looking forward to it. So I thank oh. both of you. Kim, thank you so much. Of course. Judge Knapp, thank you. Everybody, that was the Honorable Judge Knapp and the spectacular Kim Clark right here on Recovery Uncensored from the Big Z Media Studio. Everybody have a good day or night. You know, when you're listening. You can come with us if you don't have friends or family or people that you trust. We will be-